If we want to keep folks on the landscape and if we want to make the housing affordable and if we want to make sure there are jobs and at the same time protecting the environment, we're going to have to work hard at that. It doesn't just happen. and You have to involve those folks who live there. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series, Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In this episode of the Life in the Land series, we're in Sealy Lake in Western Montana. The Sealy Swan region is a forested, mountainous area. These two valleys, the Swan Valley and the Clearwater Watershed, with Sealy Lake at its center, is nestled between two wilderness complexes and connected by a string of lakes and rivers. The Bob Marshall Wilderness is on the east and the Mission Mountains Tribal Wilderness on the west. The local communities are all unincorporated towns and the economy mostly revolves around forestry, timber, and outdoor recreation. A wealth of biodiversity inhabits this area and the wildlife depends on these migration corridors for their survival. From grizzly and black bears to lynx, wolverines, migratory birds, and critical bull trout spawning grounds. Today we're speaking with Karen Miske, the executive director of the Clearwater Resource Council, a locally led entity that works to engage the community and facilitate efforts that enhance, conserve, and sustain the environment and rural lifestyle of the Clearwater watershed. Karen shares with us about what holistic, community led work around climate, equity, and environmental quality can look like, the realistic challenges to starting and sustaining a local nonprofit, and as pressures on small towns and wild places increase, why these efforts are always worth it. She also shares an example of a collaborative process that did not go so well. When I see the work that CRC is involved in, it becomes clear that entities such as this one that empower local communities to connect and protect to the ecosystems that they're a part of is needed everywhere. And I think Karen shares some great information that can help others who are looking to embark in collaborative or locally led work in their own community. I work for the Clearwater Resource Council. I'm the executive director and we are located in Sealy Lake, which is in the heart of the Clearwater Valley and the Clearwater Watershed. We're an hour north of Missoula. And if you're familiar with Missoula, it's one of the biggest cities in Montana and you drive an hour north and you're in a completely different world. Um, it's much more rural. And what really makes the Clearwater unique is um, its long string of lakes. So there's a chain of lakes that runs in the north from Alva, Inez, Placid Sealy, Big Sky, and Salmon. And those lakes are the heart of the Clearwater system and provides the unique wildlife habitat for a whole host of creatures, both aquatic and terrestrial. And how would you describe the, the community of this area? I would say it's a disparate community in that you have a community of retirees um, who tend for the most part to be in the upper economic demographic and you have uh, local folks sometimes who have been here for generations and are, are mostly working folks. The biggest employer by far is Pyramid. Um, they are a timber company and um, they provide relatively good paying jobs 
and that is certainly something that helps the local economy. But what we're seeing, just like everywhere else, is a lot of the businesses here, other than Pyramid, are having a lot of difficulty attracting uh, folks to work, and some of the businesses have gotten to the point where they have to um, restrict hours, in some cases pretty significantly, and or restrict activities because they don't have the staff. So um, what you need to think about is that there's a permanent population of roughly 2,000 people who live here full-time permanent in the winter. Um, in the summer, the population swells um, in part due to the fact that there are a lot of um, summer residents, but more importantly, um, it swells because of the tourism trade and traffic here. So the population swells to about 100,000 in the summer or over 100,000 depending on the summer. So um, it, it is difficult for such a small community to service the tourism needs of such a large base of people. And I know there's probably many elements that contribute to it, but why do you think that there is such a hard time finding employees for those industries? I think one of the, one of the things that becomes difficult is housing here has become um, extremely problematic. And, and that's the case in most of the country right now. Housing prices are skyrocketing. The difference is um, there's just very little supply here. So at any given point in time, you may have 10 or 15 homes on the market. And because of that scarcity, the prices have um, exceeded what people can afford to buy. So um, if you're working at a hospitality industry or, a in, a, you know, or in, a, in a retail job, you can't afford a $400,000 house and you can't afford to make the payment on what, what is in essence a minimum wage job. Karen tells me about the mission of the Clearwater Resource Council and what sparked the formation of the group. The mission statement for the Clearwater Resource Council is to protect the natural resources in the Clearwater Valley as well as protecting the rural lifestyle of local residents. The organization was created about 20 years ago and it was created to address uh, two dual threats. The first was the disposition of thousands of acres of Plum Creek land. Uh, Plum Creek was a large timber company and they were selling off most of their lands and the concern was that those lands would be sold for subdivision and that the impacts associated with those subdivisions would be um, pretty significant for the natural resources in the area. Um, that threat was fully resolved when the Plum Creek lands were in fact uh, purchased by both uh, government and not-for-profit organizations, including the Nature Conservancy. What Karen is referring to here is what became known as the Montana Legacy Project and involved tireless efforts over several years by residents, private and public entities, NGOs, and locally-led collaboratives, such as the Clearwater Resource Council. You can find a link with more info on this incredible story of collaboration in this episode's show notes. The second threat really had to do more with uh, something that we're still wrestling with today, and that's the threat of catastrophic wildfire. Um, climate change has only been exacerbating that. Um, CRC has spent um, hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, working with community members to mitigate their properties and to reduce the threat of catastrophic wildfire. But uh, the climate change impacts are making for drier conditions for a longer period of time, which accelerates the, the threat of forest fire. So it, it's something that we're still wrestling with today. Karen shares how since its inception and through to today, CRC is truly a community-led entity and what this can look like in practice. So CRC has 
all, all of the board um, are, are local residents here. So uh, by definition, it's a citizen-driven, resident-driven um, organization. And I can give you a couple of examples of how we work directly with the, the citizens and the entities here. So one of our programs is the Clearwater Lakes Alliance. And right now we are working directly with the Placid Lake Cabin Owners Association to develop a lake management plan. Um, and that plan and the components of that plan are driven by the community meetings that we have with the Placid Lake homeowners to try to identify those areas where we can get consensus and have meaningful uh, have a meaningful impact on the ground. The consensus process we're using for uh, working with the homeowners on Placid Lake is extremely informal. Um, we don't we don't do motions, and uh, the conversation is relatively free flowing. So oftentimes we pick uh, certain areas of interest, and those areas of interest were identified by a survey that we sent out to the homeowners. Every homeowner on the lake got a survey, and. Um, well over 80% voiced concerns about water quality. So the first um, issue that we're tackling in the lake management plan is water quality. So we'll pick an area of interest, um, for example, uh, riparian management, and I'll provide a set of recommendations associated with riparian management. Uh, the folks will talk about it, and then we'll say, okay, we agree with all of these, but this one, or no, this list looks good, or shouldn't we add this? Or um, So it's a very collaborative, free-flowing process. And then, uh, you know, we essentially write it up. And then each set of recommendations will go into a broader management plan. So uh, once that plan is completed, the um, subcommittee working on that plan will then submit the plan for approval to the uh, board of the Placid Lake Cabin Owners Association for, for final approval. It has been pretty smooth, but not everything is smooth, um, as I'm sure you know. Um, you know, the, the uh, quintessential example of things not going smoothly is what happened uh, with the sewer, uh, the sewer here in Sealy Lake. That is an example of, I think, a collaborative effort that um, just simply failed. The discussion around the sewer um, has occurred for well over a decade, and uh, the water quality issues that were there a decade ago are still here today. So um, the, the failure of that collaborative really um, is unfortunate because in the meantime, we have a lake that is struggling. So it, it's really important that when we start these collaborative efforts, we think them through and make sure that the the method that we're using is something that will resonate with and be embraced by the community. You can't collaborate if the community doesn't want to collaborate. I asked Karen to elaborate on the issue of the septic in Sealy Lake. And it's important to note here that the community of Sealy Lake, while it in every way feels like a small town with a main drag and a few restaurants, a grocery store, shops, and a museum, it is not officially an incorporated town. Therefore, much of the decision-making about things like septic and infrastructure falls upon the county, which for Silly Lake means Missoula County. Uh, the septic saga is a long one, so I'm going to greatly simplify it. And the long story short is that um, there is documented groundwater contamination due to septic leachate, meaning probably multiple septics on Silly Lake uh, are failing and that the septic from those are making their way into the groundwater. 
the, we have not fully documented how the groundwater is interacting with surface water sources. There, there's been some of that, but more needs to be done. Um, but when this issue came to light, Missoula County, I think with the best of intentions, thought that this, the solution would be to construct a sewer system here in Sealy Lake. So when the concept was presented um, to the residents and uh, the residents were informed that they would have um, some sort of increase, uh, it was unclear how much initially, on their monthly sewer bill, uh, there was a lot of concern. And I think what, what generated the greatest concern for the folks that wound up opposing the sewer is that those that were least able to afford an increase of $100 a month um, were the ones being tasked with paying for the sewer. And as a result of that, uh, the backlash over time grew also in part because the process didn't really allow for um, a feasibility study to determine um, what other options were possible in addition or apart from the sewer. So it may well be that in fact another system isn't possible and that the sewer is the only way to go and the sewer is what makes the most sense. The problem is because the analysis wasn't done to see what else would have been possible, it seems to me that folks felt that they simply weren't being listened to and that their opinion didn't count. And um, it's an example of a collaborative process kind of uh, that went amok. Recently, uh, within the last month or so, the millions of dollars that had been accrued to offset a large cost of the sewer project were rescinded and given back to the funders because the deadline for their use was, was coming up. So we're now at a point where we still have a problem with septic leachate in Sealy Lake and uh, no feasibility studies have been done and there's no money for a sewer. So the, the timing of this is particularly painful from my perspective because uh, we just had funding announcements for the American Rescue Act that would have further supplemented and, and perhaps even made the sewer free of charge uh, for community residents and we've, we've now um, essentially given up that opportunity. So the, the timing was, I feel, particularly painful. And, and we are essentially starting anew. Uh, there, there is no funding, and if, from my understanding, the, the county has right now no plans for funding for this area. You know, it, I think it's a lesson well learned, which is that if you're going to go into a community and you want to undertake a collaborative process, even if you think you know the answer, and even if perhaps your answer is the best answer, you still need to do the analysis to make sure that everyone comes on board and everyone comes along with you rather than leaving people behind. I'm sure, as Karen mentioned, it's a lesson well learned, and where hopefully new approaches will lead to positive outcomes for the community. While local leadership in an organization is important, it also comes with its challenges, especially in a rural location where it can be difficult just to get program participation. I asked Karen about these realistic challenges and ways that CRC navigates through them. You know, I think there's always a challenge getting volunteers. I, I think um, it's, it's a tough thing. But in, in, a, pop, in a population of 2,000, it becomes an especially challenging thing. So we, we go out of our way to try to um, bring folks on board. And, and one of our events is an invasive lily removal uh, program. And uh, we give out all kinds of prizes to help people motivate to volunteer. 
Some things I think are a lot easier um, to get volunteers for. So for example, our fuels mitigation program has a waiting list right now. So we, we have lots of folks who want to do that. But there's a very direct benefit to mitigating your property. So there, there is some amount of self-interest there. Um, you know, whereas when we ask people to come out on the lake and, and work for four hours cutting lilies, that, that benefit is a little less tangible. So uh, certainly volunteers are, are always challenging. Funding is probably the single most challenging thing. And I think in certain instances, funders are looking to fund in rural communities and, and you can capitalize on that. But in others, a lot of assumptions are made about what an organization can do. So we recently worked, uh, we're considering a grant with the National Forest Foundation. And the way the grant was structured, I don't really see how a small rural community could successfully get the grant. And when I talked to the grantor, um, they were lovely and you know when I explained our position they said you know you raise a lot of good points but you know we can't do what Denver does you know the point was made well Denver is, is providing sustainable funding from their PILTS money into the future and, and they have an MOU that states that and I'm like well we don't have a Denver at our disposal so uh, funding can become very challenging in a, in a small community and I think you know another challenge for us certainly is staffing it's a tiny community. There's only a very limited number of folks who have the credentials that we're looking for for some of our jobs. And um, we are regularly in a position where we're really struggling to fill positions. Um, and we often have to resort to pulling candidates from Missoula, which is an hour away, because we don't have enough people here in Sealy Lake to fill those positions. And then if we fill a position in Missoula, um, and someone wants to move up here to Sealy Lake, well, where do they live? There, there is no housing here. So, I mean, those are probably some of the biggest challenges we're facing, and I don't know that they're unique, um, but they're certainly challenges. And one of the ways we've addressed housing is um, two of our board members have some housing on their property that they've been willing to, to share with us, and we're just really fortunate in that regard. Um, so those are probably the, the, the biggies, uh, funding, housing, staffing. <laughs> And with that, you know, it's folks who live here and call this home year-round who really know not only the landscape, but the, the needs here and, um, you know, all the different pressures that come and, and the benefits. Can you tell me why it's so important for the voices of the folks who live in an, an area and a community to be the ones involved in the decision-making for what happens there. The failure of the sewer system, I think, is the quintessential example of what happens when you don't involve the community in a meaningful way um, in, in the discussion. Um, I also think if you want to maintain the rural authenticity of communities, then you have to involve those rural folks who live there. If we want to keep folks on the landscape and if we want to make the housing affordable and if we want to make sure there are jobs and at the same time protecting the environment, we're gonna have to work hard at that. It doesn't just happen. Um, there has to be hard work and thought that goes into that. Absolutely. And on that, um, what is the importance of having these collaborative decision-making processes? You know, it's, it's easy for an organization or an entity to just work with those who might be like-minded and so to make sure that their plans go forward quicker. Um, what's the importance of getting folks with different values together or different priorities together to make 
decision. So to speak to that, I'll give you another example. We do work on aquatic invasive species prevention, and in particular, preventing the introduction of zebra and quagga mussels. And uh, we go out, we monitor the waters uh, for these mussels. Um, we do educational events to educate the public. But at the end of the day, we can monitor and we can educate and we can try to put programs in place. But if the people themselves aren't on board with the message and they don't clean, drain, and dry their boats, we will get a mussel infestation. So it, it is really important that folks participate because only a handful of folks launching their boats can undo all of your work in a heartbeat. So it, it's really important that your message resonates and that um, it's a collaborative effort rather than a top-down effort because anytime you start with a top-down effort, you're probably not going to get the results you want in terms of community involvement and participation. And for a lot of what we do, we can't be successful without that willing participation of the community. And tell me about the solar project. And you can say, you know, the entities that you're partnering with for that. Okay. Um, about two years ago, uh, Clearwater Resource Council wanted to uh, contribute to climate change mitigation in a meaningful way. And you know, sometimes that's hard to figure out what does, it, what does that look like. And one of the things that came to the fore was um, thinking about trying to partner with entities to facilitate the installation of a solar installation here in Sealy Lake. Um, so currently we're working with the Missoula Electric Co-op, the Bonneville Environmental Foundation to put together a project. And the way the solar power project works is Missoula Electric installs the solar panels. The solar panels, if you buy one, give you a um, monthly rebate on your electric bill. So Bonneville Environmental Foundation will provide the $50,000 to offset the cost of those purchases for low-income residents. So uh, we're now kind of moving into the next phase, which will be looking um, towards installation and more community discussion. So the approach of the project as a whole and why we got into this initially is to um, try, try in our own small little way to um, help address climate change. But the nice benefit of this is we can also um, address some of the equity issues that have plagued and are plaguing this community. So helping the low-income population with their energy bills um, was a really nice side benefit that the Bonneville Environmental Foundation was able to contribute with, with their funding. So our hope is that this will be um, very well received by the community and that um, we will encourage other folks to um, install solar installations on their own private homes. So that, that's the goal, and it's, it's still a work in progress. Um, and what does the changing climate mean for this area? For this area, I mean, there, there's lots and lots of impacts, but I mean, the two that I think are most evident is uh, longer, hotter, drier uh, summer seasons, which translates into um, more risk for catastrophic wildfire. Um, and uh, as time goes on, that will likely get worse. Um, the other thing that is really significant is that we've had an uptick in blue-green algae blooms. While not all blue-green algae is toxic, it certainly can be toxic, and the impact to waterfowl and the impact to, to even terrestrial species who drink from a foul lake are deadly. 
wildlife issues aside, um, this means that folks pulling their water from the lake can no longer pull their water from the lake or have to be very careful in the use of that water. Some, some really significant water quality impacts and we're trying to study that more. So this year we're doing a full baseline analysis on all six major lakes including doing samples for blue-green algae and including taking samples for E. coli. The likely scenario is that there are probably some existing problems in the lakes that have been here for quite a while, but when you overlay um, an accelerating uh, climate on top of that, uh, you get the blue-green algae bloom. I don't think climate change is anywhere near as controversial as it was 10 years ago, and I think um, although there are probably are pockets of folks who um, still are climate change deniers. I think there's a growing recognition that there's a problem. You know, that's no longer really a, a challenge for most um, environmental organizations. I think the greater challenge is what do we do about it and how do we address it and what does that look like? And you know, you need to start thinking kind of creatively and I can give you one example. So we, we know um, that there is an existing dewatering problem on Sealy Lake. Um, especially in drought years. And uh, we know that one of the ways that you can address that is by leaving beavers on the landscape. Beavers hold back the water, they retain the water in your system. So uh, next week we're meeting with a property owner who called me who said, um, you know, I'd like to keep the beavers on my property, but uh, they've just cut down a bunch of my trees and I'm not that happy about it. So we're gonna go there and try to figure out, you know, what, what can we do to keep the beavers on the landscape, but save this gentleman's trees so that <clears throat> he doesn't have a completely denuded uh, lake shore. So, you know, I, I think the challenge for all of us is, is figuring out what we can do at the local level. Um, you know, we don't have the ability to implement climate change policy on a national or global scale. So thinking about what we can do locally while recognizing we're, we're not addressing the problem on a a broad scale, all we're doing is mitigating impacts, um, it, you know, sometimes is a tough sell for, the, for, for any community because it's like, well, we can't do anything, it's too big, it's too much beyond us. Um, so it's our job to educate folks and say, yeah, this is happening, but we can make it a little better. Karen speaks to the youth outreach that CRC is involved with and shares this value in creating this connection of residents of all ages to their ecosystem. We have um, two youth programs right now. The first is Students in Action, and we work with students during the school year to go out and monitor the stream, uh, which is directly adjacent to their school, so they can walk down to the stream and they do uh, monitoring on that stream. They collect the samples, they analyze the samples, they graph the samples on Excel, and then we talk about, you know, what, what do the results mean? Um, so that's our Students in Action program and that has been going on for, for many years and we actually have data that is useful in helping us trying to figure out what is going on in Morrell Creek because the lower part of Morrell Creek has been problematic in terms of water quality. Um, and then the second part of that is something we did just start this year which is we have uh, a high school internship program. So we have two high school interns and they are responsible for doing the monitoring of Morrell Creek um, in the off season in the summer. And um, so far, it's been working fabulously well. Uh, they're coordinating with our AmeriCorps volunteer. And um, it, you know, if this works well, we'll probably expand the program, the internship program for next summer. Of course, we want to educate youth, and we want them to have a good understanding, not just of science, but of the science that is um, pertinent to them and their lives. So understanding the creek that they see every day um, is, is meaningful. 
Um, I think the second thing is uh, we can provide them with some um, maybe expansion a little bit anyway, um, an expansion of their horizons. I think a lot of kids at this age in high school struggle with what they want to do when they grow up, so to speak. And um, a lot of them don't know all of the different job opportunities that are out there. So part of our program is, um, when, when we do the Students in Action program, part of that program is to um, you know, talk about what are the careers available in natural resources management so that they have at least some idea about what might be out there. Um, and I think then the, the third piece is, you know, we're, we hope that at least some of these youth will eventually become the next generation stewards. I mean, I think if we don't connect people and they don't see the importance of it, then we're going we're gonna to continue to lose um, natural resources on the landscape. Um, it is really important and it is important for people to kind of understand that natural world. Um, we have plenty of folks who want to do fuel mitigation with us and when we go to a, a, a property to visit with a landowner about it, um, you gain all kinds of insights and as a natural resources professional oftentimes you take you, you tend to take things for granted. You tend to take certain bits of knowledge for granted. So I was visiting with a gentleman and he said, yeah, this tree over here, this one really has to come down. The needles are a big pain. And I was like, well, that tree is a ponderosa pine. That's really your most fire resistant tree on the landscape. So you really want to keep that one. So, you know, I, I think some, some of the disconnect is often not willful disconnect. You know, folks don't know. And unless you share your knowledge and unless you get the word out, um, decisions are going to be made sometimes that are, are less than optimal. Next week we're doing a workshop um, on how to thin your property. And we're going to go over things like, you know, which, which are the most important trees to maintain? Which are the things that should come out? Um, how do you do that so that you also uh, protect wildlife habitat? Um, so most folks I have found, once you explain something to them and they understand it, most, not all, um, are, are really excited to um, do the right thing. Um, you know, there are exceptions to that rule, surely. But um, I have found pretty consistently, at least here in, in the Clearwater, that um, folks are looking to preserve this lifestyle and they realize how unique it is and, and what a gift it is to live here. Absolutely. And there's a lot of similarities with this, but what about on a social level, you know, I think especially with the pandemic, um, but even before, you know, we had this disconnect from each other sometimes. And, and a lot of that comes from divisions or thinking that there's more divisions than there really are. And um, what's the importance of us connecting with each other? I think there's a, and, and both sides do it. Um, I think there is a tendency sometimes to villainize. And I think it's really important to remember that even if someone is on the political divide opposite you, um, they still may be a wonderful person, a wonderful, kind, caring person. It's a pretty significant simplification to say, you know, all somebody, you know, all of this group or all of that group. I mean, there are, there are you know, apples in every group that aren't so great. But it's important to work with everybody as to the extent that you can. I mean, there are times when you can't, but to the extent that you can, and not make foregone conclusions before you test those waters. Thank you so much to Karen Miske for speaking with us. 
You can find out more about the Clearwater Resource Council at crcmt.org. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram. We encourage you to check out the other four episodes which hear from other voices in the Sealy Swan region. Also check out lifeintheland.org where you can find the film featuring these voices around the Sealy Swan as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Please reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. Thank you all for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Kalispell, Kootenai, Blackfeet, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Thank you to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode and to Katie Sprout for production assistance in the field. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet for all. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support. We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winna Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Wooded, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org.